Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my good friend, Eric Cook, for the inauguration of a new series of podcasts on silent cinema, which is something we have never done before at the ACF. In our master series, where we talk about John Ford and Kristen Sturgis, we'll be talking about Frank Capra and such famous directors from old Hollywood. We should also talk about the beginning of Hollywood and therefore D.W. Griffith, than whom no one was more praised and is more controversial among American directors and is very much worth talking about. Moreover, Eric is the man with whom to talk about this. Eric and I have done a number of podcasts on Hitchcock, especially on Christmas movies or on Christopher Nolan's wonderful Dunkirk movie, so on and so forth. But this is the area where he is an expert silent cinema and so we will be doing under his leadership really an entire series four or five movies by D.W. Griffith over the next couple of months and so now we will be talking today about the birth of a nation but first about D.W. Griffith himself about silent cinema its place in cinema history and how America came up with a new form of artistry and storytelling and all-American myth-making to boot. So, Eric, thanks a lot for thinking about this and for bringing it over to the ACF, among your other avenues for talking about silent cinema. This is something we have long missed in our attempt to give a history of Hollywood, of American cinema. And, uh, of course, it's also timely in ways we will discuss again and again throughout the next couple of months, so we don't need to start with that now. But first, tell us about your work with silent film and D.W. Griffith, and let's go from there to the history of silent film. Thank you so much, Titus. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to, to talk about film, and I'm excited to talk about silent film. I started a YouTube channel and it also has a companion website that will be launching on September 29th and a, a Facebook group, and it's called Speaking About Silence. And Speaking About Silence is a place where I hope to reach out using this sort of collaborative discussion you have pioneered uh, with the Vericus Cinema Foundation podcast. And so this will kind of be a joint project for both of us in the hopes of reaching people who already love classic film and love thinking philosophically and politically about film in the true sense, to explore silent film. But I'm also hoping that I can bring some silent film people into your world and get more people interested in these great, great movies. And my experience in silent film began the way I think most people uh, love a film, began by watching films at some point. You know, I encountered silent film as a young person, but what launched me deeply into the world of silent film was my love of music and interest in the historic practice of silent film musical accompaniment. And my wife and I and some friends in Pennsylvania, when we lived there, now live in North Carolina, we built a, an orchestra that performed for live silent film screenings. And I also did solo performances on piano and organ. And we've continued that. We did right before COVID. In fact, the weekend before the whole universe seemed to shut down in the United States. We did uh, Harold Lloyd's The Freshman with live orchestra for an audience of over 150 people in our small town here. It was greatly received, and we were about to launch a, a new series of silent film performances, which we are about to hopefully relaunch again this spring. And so, yes, my interest in silent film flows out of this confluence of these two art forms, which is music and cinema. And it resulted in just an off-the-hand comment made one time at a church I was serving as an organist. One of the gentlemen there, a great guy named Jeff Bortz, 
said to me, hey, we, we need to do something for Mardi Gras before, you know, the church kind of goes into its Lenten cycle. And he said, let's do something to, to, as a gift to the community. And we were talking about screening a classic Hollywood movie or something. And, and we batted off the idea, this was about 15 years ago, of, of well, why don't we do a silent film and I could accompany it on the uh, church's uh, historic pipe organ. And we agreed and uh, we did a whole program and that launched the film series and built an orchestra and so forth and so on. And later I was privileged to work with David Shepard, who was one of the great film preservationists in Hollywood. I did not know him particularly well, but he was always generous and willing to help and brought me in on a project. So I was able to score a silent film release through Image Entertainment of Timothy's Quest, a Sidney Olcott 1922 film. Our orchestra, uh, I was in Montana at the time, so they couldn't perform it, but uh, Rodney Sowers, Mont Alto Silent Film Orchestra beautifully played the score I, I composed and mostly compiled, as was the historic practice. That score has been very well received. So yeah, I have a great love for silent film. So I'm excited to try to reach a new audience and to expand the audience for silent film through your audience and others. One of the things that I, I wanted to do, one of the things that I think is important to emphasize to people who are new to silent film is that we tend to have stereotypes about silent film that get in the way. Uh, I think of people experiencing them. And I think that silent films should be known and enjoyed for, for two main reasons. One is their historical significance in the development of the art of cinema. I mean, it's where it all begins. It's where all the techniques begins, all the things that make movies what they are. And so you really cannot understand later filmmaking. And if you look at any of the great directors, it's obvious that they have an affection for at least an understanding for silent film. And we see them reusing and reaching back to silent film all the time. And also, you know, those films that bridge the gap historically between them. Uh, Stanley Kubrick comes to mind. He was uh, one of those great directors who often looked to moments in silent cinema for a visual cue or an idea. And he's certainly not alone. And of course, many of the classic Hollywood directors came up through the studio system in the silent era, John Ford being a preeminent example. He was producing big pictures in the mid twenties, but many other directors and uh, and actors, of course, were in secondary units, you know, earning their craft, learning their craft, owning their skills that way as well. So we need to understand silent film from a technical aspect. But I think the more important reason is that these are just great movies. And they're great movies that tell great stories and they tell them in unique and interesting ways. And they need to be seen and enjoyed for what they are, which is a popular form of art and a popular form of entertainment. And that gives them an ability to communicate things about the past that I think are sometimes you know, easily overlooked. And you know, I, I think uh, Siegfried Krakauer you know, once said that watching old movies is a means of exploring one's past. And he was certainly thinking more specifically about Weimar Germany and the films of that era, but I, it's certainly true of any era. And I think that many of the things that have happened in the last 30 and 40 years of American history have had a long trajectory and a long march. And a, and a place, one, one of the places, to begin to see them unfold and understand them. You might think this is a third reason to watch silent film, is that we can see the nation and its history and its myth-making unfold throughout uh, the silent end of the sound era. And so they're, they're definitely a link to us. And one of the reasons I find uh, D.W. Griffith so fascinating is he really is a link not just to the early 20th century world, but the 19th century world. And his films allow us to enter into this myth-making process from a very early time and connecting us to ideas, good and bad, from 19th century and earlier America. And 
Griffith understood himself in that role. He really saw himself as primarily a poet. He would sometimes deprecate his film work and he would deprecate motion pictures in general by saying that he really intended to be a theatrical poet. He wanted to be a great playwright, but he had sort of fallen into this lesser art form. I think there's some truth in what he's saying, but I, you know, he's a great one for Ballyhoo and you know, trying to make his own myths about himself. So they certainly offer us insights, not only into great art and great entertainment, and not only the mechanics of filmmaking, but they also offer us insights into what's increasingly an alternative world of existence, which was the America before the 20th century and into the early 20th century. So I think one of the things that to get back to my earlier comment about there are cliches and obstacles, is that when many people conceive of silent film, that they think of, you know, uh, pie-throwing, uh, slapstick comedies, and very scratchy, difficult to see damaged film stock, and they think of a very tinkly, out-of-tune, ragtime piano. And there's a reason those cliches exist, but they have nothing really to do with what silent film is all about. You know, if you go to see a silent film, that's the way to see them, because Ben Modell's one of the premier accountants, somebody I look up to and admire. He does almost every Sunday through YouTube live uh, accompaniment from his apartment. He'll play two or three silent film comedies and play the piano live. And he's, I mean, he's brilliant. He's just one of the great masters. He's right up there with Rodney Sauer and Robert Israel. And, and there's a host of these guys who really do these outstanding jobs of bringing these films to life with live music. And he recently wrote that one of the things that makes silent film so powerful is that the pieces that are missing, because when we sit down to enjoy a silent film, there is no dialogue. And if there's color, it's primarily tinting and toning rather than, you know, the sort of technicolor filming technology that becomes the norm after World War II, something is subtracted. But that, that subtraction is actually a net positive for the experience of silent film. By removing the human voice and to some extent, by removing natural color, when we engage with silent film, it is a much more immersive experience because our minds have to, in essence, supply what is missing. And yet we don't have to worry about what is missing. The need to form a complete sense of meaning from the artistic experience uh, comes from within the individual viewer as they react to the images and also the music. So with that in mind, silent films, of course, were always shown publicly. This was a popular form of mass entertainment and really the first truly American art form and certainly the first American art form to the other one being jazz to sort of seize national and then international attention. And with motion pictures, if you're going to see these silent films, I highly encourage you, you need to see them at a live screening with live music because there is nothing else like it. And I can only speak to this from the performer's point of view, that when you are presenting silent film and as a musician, and when we do this, I don't do the conducting. My wife, Rebecca, is a superb conductor. She was trained under some excellent people. Uh, Jack Stamp was one of her teachers, well-known in the world of concert band music. But Jack Stamp taught her to conduct. She's a far better conductor than I could ever hope to be. So she conducts, and I sit at the piano. And then we're surrounded by our other performers, usually nine to 20 in number. And as we perform that show, from the first few moments when the audience finally begins to settle into realizing, and of course, this is, I think, primarily subconscious, that they settle in and their minds begin to work through the film. 
they become invested because in a live audience situation with silent film, we, the performers in the orchestra pit, have to react with impeccable timing to what's on screen, much like an orchestra pit does for an opera or a ballet. We have the advantage that it always happens the same way each time. But we also have the disadvantage that it happens the same way each time. And so there's never any leeway because our performers are relentless and uh, dictatorial. And so our, our music must keep pace with them precisely as we've planned the score and as we've rehearsed it. But for the audience, the audience experiences the wash and give and take that live musicians always experience with an audience, but with an added component. They all know that we are there at the service of the, the flickering images on the screen. And when it happens right, and when it really happens the way it's supposed to, the audience begins to forget about us. They don't remember that we're there. They believe that the sound is coming. And I've, I've been told this after many a show, whether it was solo organ performance or orchestra, that I forgot you were even up there. I just began to think that the sound was coming out of the, out of the picture. And that's exactly what should happen. Uh, when we performed the freshman uh, before a non-specialist audience, you know, and most of these people had never been to a live silent film, the vast majority, some of them had never been to a silent film. Many of them were children. Very quickly, they are laughing and reacting to the movie in a way that they do not when they go to the cinema to see the latest Hollywood film. And as that picture comes to its climax, as Harold Lloyd, you know, if you don't know the freshman, it's the one of the urtexts, you know, nerdy kid goes to college on the sports team kind of comedy. And of course, Harold Lloyd saves the day. And as he runs that football down the field for the final touchdown, the audience cheered, chanted, and leapt to their feet, applauding as he won the game. I mean, that would never happen in a modern film. I mean, no matter how much they enjoyed it, because they're simply, you were swept away in a wave of uh, emotion because of that element of the live music. And of course, when we show a silent film, we always ensure that we have the best copy available, whether it's on film or DVD or Blu-ray, that, so that it's a restored copy of the film where you know, all the scratches and all the damage have been slowly and carefully removed without hopefully damaging any of the integrity of the original images, or in some cases where negatives have survived in, in pristine or near pristine condition. So silent films, they're very democratic in that sense. They, they, they bind an audience to the performers and to the film together in a way that I think is quite unique. So having said all of that, you know, if you go to seek out silent films, of course, get them on DVD, watch them on Netflix or Hulu or through Amazon Prime or whatever, uh, Turner Classic Movies online or on cable. But also, if you can, go see them in person. Go see them with some of the great groups around the country that perform and individuals that perform live music. You will not be disappointed. Eric, you certainly have me convinced, and I would love to watch a silent movie with an actual orchestra not just because it's what was happening a hundred years ago, and I would like to know what that was like. And I completely believe you that somehow it's a more honest experience, not just because it's closer to the origins of cinema and there are fewer presuppositions, fewer set expectations as an audience, but because of these sorts of possibilities that the people should cheer the movie on in, in such a way, is indeed not the sort of thing that an audience gets up to now. But my experience of silent film, of course, has been strictly in cinema with uh, pre-recorded music. 
and in private screenings aside from that. But even so, I, I can attest myself that silent comedy still is universally beloved, even by preliterate kids, that Birth of a Nation and D.W. Griffith still are very appealing to young people. I've screened this movie for teenagers and not just film kids, at film school kids at that. And they are quite impressed with it, with its scope and with its daring mix of so many different aspects of photography. And so I think, especially for young people, the possibilities of silent film are just much more obvious, since I suppose they do not have decades of thinking not just about movies, but about TV and VHS and DVDs and so on and so forth, and thinking primarily or even only of new movies. And hopefully, our audience too, they will, we, you will see or see again this movie, you will discover or rediscover the work of D.W. Griffith, and be astonished with his photography and with his storytelling, and see how movies became what they are now, what the ambitions and the powers of this art and of the technology were. Yes, I, I, I think that you've said a couple of things that are very apropos there, and, and that one is that Silent film does have a unique ability to connect with young people. And I, I taught a class on silent film for American middle school students, you know, ages 11 and a half to 14 or so. And they made their own silent films. And there's, there's even a very popular international silent film competition for young people, high school age students, that garners entries from all over the world. So there's an ability to communicate without words that is liberating, I think, for young people who are struggling to find their articulation. And as you said, yeah, Griffith has an immense power. Um, there's this great quote, Graham Greene in 1936 said that the only film he had seen worth speaking of in the last fortnight was a reissue with sound of A Birth of a Nation. And there is a sense in which what Griffith accomplished in 1915, many people really felt that it had not been surpassed into the early 1940s, which is interesting because I think one kind of has to start with Griffith because Griffith is where American cinema becomes an international force to be reckoned with. He's not, of course, the first American director. And, and of course, many of the innovations, some of which were, he claimed or others claimed were his, were not. But he certainly earned in some sense, although you and I have talked about the ambiguity and perhaps misleadingness of the title, the Chaplin and this, of course, Charlie Chaplin being a great fan of sentimentality. That's what Griffith, in a way, spoke of him as being the father of us all. But we've talked that there's an inherent ambiguity in that statement. In, in what way is he the father of American film? And, of course, we're talking about The Birth of a Nation. And The Birth of a Nation is a film that is essentially persona non grata in some ways today because of its content. And yet, as you said, when you show this film, one is absolutely swept along with it. I remember reading an article when I was a university student, this was in the 90s, and I could not locate the quote to give it the proper provenance, but one film professor spoke about the fact that when he showed this film in the 1980s to his college students, even the African-American students were shaken by how much they were swept up in Griffith's narrative, even though, of course, you know, either anywhere from problematic to repulsive to them. And, and I think that therein lies the great problem with the film. And, why it, you know, you know, we're we're treading where angels should fear to go, but I think it has to be discussed. And I think that lately it's treatment. There's a, a YouTube video of a discussion of the Griffith and, and the Birth of a Nation from the Library of Congress. I'm not going to spend a lot of time discussing it at all, but 
one of the things that struck me was the way that which the film was simply dismissed. And you can't dismiss the film. One can be upset with it. One can deal with the implicit and explicit racism in it, but one cannot dismiss it. And one cannot dismiss Griffith. And one of the things that I think has to be done is there has to be a, a just reckoning of, of what he achieved in, in both senses. And I think one sense in which Chaplin is right, that Griffith is kind of a father in the film world, is that he does gather together these techniques. Many of them, of course, not his. Some of them are pre-cinematic in nature. And he puts them, however, together in a fluid aesthetic that creates an emotional aesthetic and that carries the audience along. And it's really a bridge between the 19th century and the 20th. And his films prior to a birth were exceedingly popular. He made Biograph Studios what it was, a powerhouse in early American cinema. And as soon as he left Biograph, it commercially ceased to exist. And so the movies that Griffith produced between 1915 and 1921 overwhelmed audiences with the sheer power of his ability to marshal drama and emotion and narrative uh, in a kind of poetry. And, and really, as I've thought about Griffith, that's really what I think he is. He, he's a poet and, and a true poet in the sense that he's trying to be a teacher and a teacher of certain moral and certain insights, but he's doing it poetically. And, and while he may have deprecated his role in cinema as uh, inferior to that of the spoken drama, I think that uh, what he achieved, would, we look at that period of American drama and there's nothing really that, I mean, Eugene O'Neill has kind of dropped off the face of the earth, but his films and the legacy of the techniques that he develops in his films, not so much that he initiates them, but that he finds the way to integrate them into a massive coherent story. And then doesn't just cease with that, but he also attempts to root that narrative, that poetry in uh, the American mythology makes him uniquely important. One can note about his films is that they are old fashioned and yet that old-fashionedness gives them a mythic quality. And for A Birth of a Nation, that's a perfect quality because he's trying to, in essence, recreate a moment in American history. Admittedly, he's trying to recreate it through his particular lens. So I think that it's important as we think about his role in, in film and we think about the role of silent film in the development, particularly American commercial art form, that we have to begin talking about him. He really wanted to give to cinema, the language of teaching history. Interestingly, in 1915, Griffith predicted that libraries would someday no longer hold books, but would have films. And that if someone wanted to learn about Napoleon, the American Revolution, they would not go to the library to read a book. They would go, he said there would be booths where you would go and you could individually watch films there on a personal level. And that people, he also predicted that people would have machines in their homes, devices that would allow them to select films at a distance and watch them at home. And that the myth-making of film would have to be joined with the rigor of academic history. And here he's being a very kind of typical early 20th century American progressive that experts would distill from primary sources the, the essence of American history. And then poets like he would come along and they would combine those two features together and that people would no longer read history but they would experience history through film which is kind of an astonishing idea that here he is predicting what has happened to many libraries they become basically dvd rental stations for most of their patrons and that the subscription services we enjoy in our homes would be the main way that people would experience history i think though he also failed in a, in a significant way is that he did not create a tradition of American myth-making cinema in the way that he thought might occur. 
So we don't have you know, an endless stream of great historical movies spanning all of American history. We have some great historical American films scattered across the last 106 years since the birth of a nation, but we don't have a, a solid tradition of American myth-making film in history. We have some, but nobody, I don't think, was able to see his vision through the way that he really imagined it. And even shortly after A Birth of a Nation, there were some immediate imitations and sort of sequels and so forth. But soon American cinema turned to other things. When we wanted epics, we tended to go to the ancient world or to the Bible, which speaks to some extent to the Christian character, at least general sense about American culture in the 20th century. But only a handful of comedians also tried this. Buster Keaton, I think. And of course, then the Western. There's where there was constant cinema produced that had that sort of nostalgia for either the small town or the American past. But it very easily either veered into sentimentality or cliche or almost parody, except in the Western where it sort of took on a manly grandeur. Buster Keaton's most beautiful films about the past are Hospitality from 1923 and The General from 1927 were both not commercial successes at the time. Harold Lloyd with Grandma's Boy did kind of manage to do that. There were plenty of films that featured American historical experience, but none of them rose to the level of Griffiths. Yeah, I think you're right. There is a strange ambiguity about his achievement. He did not inspire that much by way of an epic vision of American history. There are not now very famous movies about the great historical figures. There are not great movies that Americans turn to to see the Civil War, actually which is the subject of Birth of a Nation. So somehow history did not matter in the way that he thought it would, or almost in any other way, strangely enough. There is not a filmed version of American history that we now turn to. And that's a very strange thing to notice. And with the benefit of Griffith, you can see suddenly that it's a question. Why don't we have this? Is this not an American ambition? Certainly it was for Griffith. In some ways it was. Of course, Birth of a Nation is a three-hour-long movie. That's something we have gotten used to nowadays, but it was shockingly rare at the time. It was almost impossible. And nevertheless, it was simply farsighted. It just took a while for the industry to catch up with this. It just took a while for audiences to catch up with this. Well, with a three-hour story, you can tell a lot of American history. It could be done, yet it hasn't happened. I suppose... Gone with the Wind, the famous American Civil War movie, would be it. It was a breakthrough in a technical way, in a sense, since it was the first very successful color movie, a historical picture, very long as well, more than three hours. Although it's not a breakthrough in the sense in which Birth of a Nation was, it seems to pick up that baton and then try to advance both the technology and the storytelling and the expectations of the audience and in a way, the grandeur and the sentimentality of the American past. And in that sense, it is faithful to Griffith. Griffith realized, as you were saying, in one sense, he was farsighted about the technology, what electricity makes possible in terms of storytelling, in terms of distribution, in terms of access. But also, he was aware that somehow this brand new technology is all about nostalgia. It's all about bringing the past back to life and making it available to all of us in flashing lights and sending it up around the America and across the world. 
And this element of nostalgia has had quite a measure of success, as you suggested. And in certain ways, it is not done now. We are not done with the past. And perhaps we could say that part of the poetic power of Griffith and his heirs is that they know the past is not done with us either, so to speak. There are memories left. There is much of the past around us and it can grip us now and then. Yes, I think so. And it is interesting. I think that element of sentimentality and nostalgia that, that Griffith taps into, if, you, if we think about Gomez Wind or the other American historical films that have both critical and popular success, they either arise in a moment in American history when there's a longing for that. One thinks of Patton, the end of the Vietnam era, or there's a sense in which we long for this, or the success of HBO's Band of Brothers, which is, I think, in some ways, one of the few works of film and television that come close to Griffith's vision. The passing of the World War II generation or Saving Private Ryan, a much more sentimental, and in my opinion, less successful endeavor, but equally popular. They do arise in these moments, but unlike what Griffith had envisioned, we don't have this compelling storytelling. If we think about the Civil War films, the only one, in my opinion, that, that gets to the heart of the matter of the Civil War is glory, but you know, it has some issues as a film, and it never caught on particularly strongly with audiences. And because it, in some ways it lacks that sentimentality and that nostalgia. Yeah, these are somehow powers that we need to learn again, so to speak. There is much in simply understanding photography, simply understanding the effect movies have on people that we have come to take for granted. For example, nowadays, movie makers don't feel the need to impress you at the beginning of a movie to just grab you. Griffith would have killed himself if he had this kind of attitude to cinema and if audiences had this kind of bored view of things. That is to say, it's just become a habit. You don't even need to grab your audience. People routinely say, yeah, it, it starts lower. It's not good in the beginning, but it gets better later. Griffith would have never tolerated making such excuses for himself or for anybody else. His demands of himself and of the audience were very, very different. And that's one way in which being used to it is making it worse for us. And a return to watching these movies is freshening up what cinema really is, because we have experienced these powers, but not quite in this way. And another part of the unusual thing we need to learn about sentimentality is precisely as you say, you look at this movie and everything in its ideas about race and history is shocking. And yet, it has such a power to carry conviction. It should make us in a certain way skeptical about uh, this sort of fantasizing. It plays with things that it does not fully comprehend. And of course, it unleashed in America a power over the public mind and over the minds of artists who have their own delusions of grandeur that uh, hasn't worked out so well. On the one hand, we have not, as we said, these great historical achievements that we might have thought, surely there'll be things to commemorate, or surely there'll be tragedies, catastrophes to remember, much less than we might have expected, strangely enough. But it's not just that in certain ways we have failed to achieve what we or our forebears expected, it's that we have done things to ourselves, unleashing these powers that we are not happy with. Becoming bored or jaded is the least of our problems, really. The extent to which fantasies still have a power over us. Uh, in a way, we are, again, living in the world of the pioneers of cinema, where brief clips 
can cause not a riot, but at any rate, a mob and some kind of misery, destroy somebody's life once they're distributed over social media. These are not theaters or Nickelodeons or whatever, but you do see the strange power a clip of recorded video and audio has over politics or stock market something or whatever other aspect of our lives. We are not free of the effects of these things. We have gotten used to them. It's now, as you're saying, young people might like to make silent movies, but you know, they might like to make any kinds of movies, YouTube movies or TikTok or what have you, shorts. These things are all around us. They define how socialization even works. And yet they are not properly understood because we do not attend to the origins of these things in something like D.W. Griffith, where you can see what it's all about. What are the powers of cinema? What are the powers of this image making? And how do they add up together? It's fresh. It's done in a way for the first time. And there's something almost miraculous about that. And you experience it, but you can also learn from it and see, as I was saying, it really is all around us. This drowning in imagery, this replacement of what we could see with our own eyes unaided with fantasies on screens more or less all the time. You know, it's a, there's a way in which Griffith's artwork is a mediation between the spoken and the written word into a silent world of images. And here we are, you know, it's almost as if we're all our own little biograph directors anymore, especially, you know, as you said, with the young, they're just saturated in TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube and every other possible media that they can think of. And there's a sense in which everything is being reduced to these images, but these images, you know, are on the one hand a fulfillment of fantasy, but they quickly slip out of control. And if there's a, a parallel with the birth of a nation, there it is, in which Griffith movie making unleashed all kinds of things in mid-1910 America, and 1915, 1921 America, that be quite astonishing for a generation or two before Griffith to even conceptualize. And I think, you know, if we look at his biography, we can see some of these forces at work. Griffith is and was a myth maker about himself. And so, you know, historians are still untangling between what he said and his publicist said over the years, the truth about a lot of things in his life. But he gets that naturally. His father was also in his own very real way, a myth maker. And that sort of myth making comes down to Griffith himself. His father was known as Roaring Jake. He was Jacob Wark Griffith and E.W. was David Wark Griffith. And Roaring Jake was a difficult man and a dramatic man and in many ways very much a man of his time and place. He sort of embodies the restlessness and the manliness of early America, but also its destructive impulses and qualities. And also there's a bit of the tragic in there, uh, although sometimes perhaps the tragic comic. And Griffith grows up in, in the shadow in the aftermath of the Civil War. And that always is coloring his thinking his great ambition was to make a Civil War picture. If you read the novel, which I don't recommend, it's awful, but if, if, you, if you want to dig into the novel or, or want to explore this from a, a historic or academic point of view, the 1905 novel, The Klansman, or its later stage production version, Griffith purposely pushed the film back to the Civil War. The novel opens up at the end of the Civil War. The play opens up in the middle of Reconstruction. Griffith knew that if he was going to tell the story and tell it the way he wanted to tell it and tell it the way that American audiences connect with it, 
he had to push it back in time. And there's a great comment, Orson Welles, in the 1970s, early 1970s, American PBS broadcast a series of great silent films and had great figures of media introduce them. I think Orson Welles did the majority, but I don't think he did all of them. But he would speak before and after the film. And he comments on one of those that as a boy, when he would see D.W. Griffith pictures, when they were brand new, he knew that there was something about them that marked them as old fashioned, but they were nonetheless never to be missed. And I think that's really rooted in who Griffith is. He's an outsider in many ways to American society, and he always tries to use his poetry as the means to get into a position of prestige. He has sort of talked about aristocratic ancestors, which probably is not true, but there might be some truth in it. And of course, coming from Virginia to Kentucky, his father was a bit of a ne'er-do-well and was always unsuccessful. He did, shortly after marrying into sort of the local plantation, aristocracy wasn't much of in that part of Kentucky, but he managed to find it and marry into it. Griffith's father then, within a few months of being married, hightailed it out to the gold fields in California uh, over land and won praise for bravery on traveling across in the wagon trains and had to bring gold back from, he went with some relatives, cousins, and brothers out to the gold fields of California and was entrusted to bring the gold back, which he did successfully, but then managed to gamble most of it away in St. Louis. And this is the kind of guy he is. But yet he's also a guy who spouts Shakespeare and Longfellow and Tennyson and the Bible and reads aloud to gatherings of friends and families in the winter evenings in their home. He is the sort of man who, when the Civil War comes, really finds his place in the world. He is a cavalry officer rising to Brigadier General by the end of the war, fights with great bravery and tenacity, single-handedly pretty much captures a Union wagon train at one point. One point he's recovering from shrapnel in his gut and he can't mount a horse, so he mounts a buggy and he whips a horse and buggy into battle to rally his troops and lead them onto the battlefield. This great image of this guy and you know, recovering from his wounds, driving around on a horse and buggy on the battlefield in the Civil War. And of course, these are the stories that Griffith grows up hearing when his dad and his cronies would get together and his father always kept a whiskey barrel on the porch. But it had a tragic side too. So there's this, on the other side, there's reports that, you know, his mother, a pious and intelligent woman, would be in the fields working alongside the children where his father and his buddies are, you know, passing out drunk on the porch. His father simply had very little ability to fit into a non-heroic kind of society and brought out the worst in him. And so, you know, you can see the sentimental coming through. Griffith's mother was a pretty devout Methodist, and she tried her best to manage the family affairs in spite of her husband's drinking and gambling. But Griffith and his siblings all greatly admired and looked up to his father. His father, interestingly enough, as the family fortunes declined, maintained friendly of some condescending relationship with ex-slaves, former enslaved people that lived in the vicinity. And one of the things that was struck about that is that when his father died, they were some of the people who came to pay their respects and stayed to the very end. There was that unique Southern attitude in which these difficulties and the horrors of slavery were also intertwined with the shared existence of people. doesn't, of course, excuse slavery or the aftermath with Jim Crow, but there was a way in which Southern peoples lived together black and white in a way that was different than the rest of the country in its unique pains. And I think that that is seen also in his father's life. And so I think that's one reason Griffith was stung and a bit uncomprehending in some ways, the reaction against the film because of its racism. He, I don't think he could understand that entirely. But these influences were not the only ones on his young mind. 
He talked about climbing under a table in the family parlor to listen to his father at night give these uh, recitations. He also talks about going to a country schoolhouse one time with his father and sitting beside him. And it was a, a double bill program. It included a magic lantern slideshow and a wrestling match, which is very early American. And that Griffith was entranced by the magic lantern. And magic lanterns and their techniques, many of which fade and dissolve, the iris opening and closed, right? those are all things that are pre-cinematic and they were part of the repertoire of traveling magic lantern shows. And Griffith talks about it being entranced by that. But he also spent a great deal of time in the natural world. He was a country boy. And like most country boys, there's a certain understanding of the brutality and beauty of the natural world. It certainly makes its way into his ability to depict nature and scenery and people in their scale in relationship to nature. And of course, through his mother and also his father's oratory, you know, the, the King James Bible. He was poorly educated, even by the standards of his time and place, mostly because of his father's declining fortunes. But his older sister, who was a school teacher, was entrusted by his father, who recognized in Griffith particular intelligence, and also in his older sister, who was also particularly intelligent, to ensure that he got as much education as possible. This was also sort of a deathbed command. Later, the family would leave behind and, and moved to town searching for work and Griffith would find himself employed in a bookstore and he referred to it as his university and he was a, an avid and voracious reader at that stage of his career and from there he went into stock theater and played quite successfully in middling companies and touring stock companies mostly on the midwest upper midwest and west coast but also sometimes on the east coast and so he was given a thorough education in the theater. He wrote a number of pieces for both vaudeville and the legitimate stage. Vaudeville usually included one-act dramas often to conclude an evening's performance or in lack or in lieu of other variety acts. And so Griffith learned some of the basics there. Interestingly, his very first cinematic, or not cinematic, but stage work was a piece set in the time of George Washington and was a short melodrama centered on the American Revolution. So from the very beginning, as a writer, He's drawn to American history. From the stage and the vicissitudes of being a traveling actor, he ended up working at Biograph first as an actor. In fact, we can see him in one of his very first performances on the stage. And he, he cuts a pretty impressive figure. He's a bit wooden as an actor. And he was noted for having a good voice, but his reviews were always mixed depending on the critic. But Griffith quickly learned that he could write and soon began to not only act, but to assist in directing and then to direct. And as he called it, he churned out you know, almost 700 sausages over the years at Biograph. But it was a spectacular way to learn the art of filmmaking, constant, relentless churning out. He also had a hand in creating or assisting in the creation of the first generation of cinematic stars in the American motion picture industry. Biograph went from being a fairly middling, low achieving studio to being one of the powerhouses of East Coast New York cinema under Griffith's leadership. He increasingly pushed the boundaries there. He was also an inveterate watcher of films. He was always watching what other people were doing and watched every film that he could see in the greater New York City area, foreign imports and American productions alike. And he incorporated what he learned from what he saw. So it's true he's not the innovator of many of the techniques he's given credit for, but he was able to put them together with stories that resonated with the American people. It was a lover of opera. He used to sing snatches from La Boheme and Tosca and Verdi's classics around this 
the set over the years as he directed. And if you're going to read one book on Griffith, um, I would say pick up uh, Adventures with D.W. Griffith by Carl Brown. Brown was the assistant cameraman on The Birth of a Nation. He was a young guy in his teens when he worked for Griffith. But first of all, it's an entertaining read. And second of all, you get a lot of insights into this personality. He, Griffith would create sort of quasi-Shakespearean poetry out top of his head. And so he sort of spoke in cryptic poetry to his crew when he wanted them to do something. And he worked mainly from improvisation, but rehearsed improvisation. He would begin with a scenario that he would write out and biograph. Usually there'd be a literary basis, or in fact, sometimes he'd sold plots from plays and operas and simply reworked them to a modern American context because it was easier to do that than have a budget for costumes and sets. And once Griffith got an idea, he would create in his head, probably from what we know, he didn't speak about his creative process as much or as directly as we would like, but it seems that he must have created in his head a film. And then he carefully worked it out, but it was always collaborative. His cameraman extraordinaire for his career, the majority of his career, of course, was Billy Bitzer and Carl Brown, who was his great assistant that came along later. They worked together with the actors and with all of the other crew including those carpenters and so forth, to craft the film through improvisatory rehearsals. And once Griffith was sure of what he wanted from his actors, they said they could always tell because Bitzer would take out a stopwatch and start to time the scene so he could plan out his shooting and how much film stock he was going to need. They knew that when the stopwatch came out that Griffith, who rarely confided to anyone except Bitzer, they knew that they were near the end of rehearsals and that they had got what he wanted. Lillian Gish was one of his great stars and one of the other great books to read is the movies, Mr. Griffith and Me, which is her autobiography. Again, an elegant and beautiful book, although, you know, both she and Brown are writing many years after the events. And so there's always you know room for error in their memories. But Lillian Gish famously tells the story that she and her sister had, Dorothy had been uh, stage actors with their mother when her father abandoned them. They had gone into the ice cream parlor business that had failed, a fire had destroyed it. They moved back to New York City looking for work in the theater and they were taken in to see Griffith, and he was taken by the two girls, and he needed two teenage girls for a film he was about to shoot, a biograph. And so he said, well, why don't you come on and join our rehearsal? Their mother was not very keen on this, and the rehearsal was going well, but he wanted more emotion, so he pulled out a pistol and began to fire it behind them to get a reaction from them. And they reported the next day for work, and you know, the rest, as they say, is, is memoir and history and all that good stuff. So Griffith was, was that kind of man that he demanded everything from his crews, but they loved him and they, for the most part, and most of the time, and they functioned like a family. And in the filming of The Birth of the Nation, many times the, the cast as funding, or the original budget of $40,000 ran out and money needed to be found. They surrendered their salaries. Bitzer took $7,000 of his life savings to invest it in the production. So Griffith, because he had been an actor, he understood actors, because he had a poetic sensibility and he he understood the rhythm, uh, and because he was an appreciator of music, he understood the rhythm that was required for filmmaking. And this inspired tremendous loyalty and creativity, this sort of you know, energy that would flow between he and his cast and crew. But there was never any doubt that he was in charge. And so he eventually sought to break free of Biograph, tried a couple of different avenues for about two years to establish himself. As early as 1910, he'd been going to California in the winters to film and to take vacations partly to film, partly to take a break from Biograph. And so he settled on Los Angeles. And really, 
he and a few other companies coming together at the same time, but in particular, what he did with the birth of a nation birthed Hollywood as we know it today and established Los Angeles as the center of American filmmaking. So Griffith has this odd character that what he saw, as we said, that new technology makes for nostalgia is also so easy as to come by as an insight for him because it represents his own life. As you're saying, from his heroic but ne'er-do-well father, he has this exact same love of drama and of drama on the greatest stage possible, the civil war. And on the other hand, a kind of disappointment in the decay of his fortune. And then this new opportunity dawns before him, a new technology, a new entertainment, cinema, a way to make his way. This combination of disappointment and opportunity of nostalgia and innovation seems especially American. It's not unique, but it seems to be something we find again and again in great American enterprises. And of course, as you describe his learning of his craft, his assembling of his team and his crew and even the stars and keeping an entire studio in business, there you see this is an enterprise. This is somehow all American because of this combination of the nostalgic and of the innovative. And these people must have realized that they were getting into something big, that there was opportunity there, that what they were doing was pregnant with the future. And why? Because somehow it seems all so familiar. This is, of course, further tied up with the fact that even more than his father, he had to invent himself. He had to make something of himself. And in America, that is not only possible, it seems to be absolutely necessary. You're nobody until you make something of yourself by making yourself into something. The fact that he lied about what he did and how for the rest of his life would seem to be merely keeping up the job, so to speak. It's nothing but what is expected. And maybe if he didn't know how to do anything else either, you end up being too tied up to your criticism, too tied up to what the headlines say, to what your publicist can sell. And so you can't quite tell which part is intended seriously and which part has to do with a sort of sham that so often surrounds big enterprises and what makes it difficult to tell the difference sometimes between people who are all about doing something serious and, well, not to put to find a point on it, scams, con artists. Americans love an entertainment and it's not always easy to tell the difference between what's serious and what's play. And it's not always easy to tell the difference between when the nation is being lied to and when the nation is just having a great old time. Yes, I think, you know, there's a great illustration of that. When Griffiths goes into the legitimate theater in the end of his adolescence, you know, his early 20s, yeah, he drops the name E.W. because, of course, his mother doesn't approve of theater. And he goes by Lawrence Griffith. And when he starts at Biograph, he's Lawrence Griffith. But once he begins to attain fame and once his films begin to stand out and once he becomes the reason Biograph becomes successful, he slowly transitions back to D.W. Griffith again. And there's a, this fine line between being a genius and, and a scoundrel. As you said, he comes by this naturally from his father. And, and I think in some ways he couldn't escape that. But he brings these sort of 19th century aesthetic ideals of romantic poetry and oratory and melodrama and comedy that and Shakespeare that you know, were the staple of the American theatrical world into this electric medium. He understood that he was beginning to see that this was moving in a new direction. In the 1912-1914 period, there are a bunch of these massive European historical epics that are brought from France, in particular, and Italy, to the American theaters. 
And they also have musical scores particularly arranged for them. And we'll come back to that when we talk about Braille, who's responsible for the, the music for Birth of a Nation. And Griffith begins to sense that he wants to do something great. He knows that he has an opportunity here. Like you said, it's half scam, the way he sort of scams his way into the finances. It's a rather what tangled web he weaves. And he can once he gets a budget at Biograph, he begins to push against it. And two of the, the last large films he made there, The Battle of Elderbrus Gulch and Judith of Bethulia, pushed that studio to its resources. And when they wouldn't go any further, that's when he walked away because he knew that he was on the cusp of a crossing over into something unique and great and that he trusted his ability to do it. But there was also in that a recklessness and an almost con artistry about how he was going to sort of bluffed his way into the $40,000 budget that he quickly blew for Birth of a Nation. The other thing we have to get to is, as you were suggesting, somehow the South captured the national imagination. It wasn't just Griffith or his family story. It wasn't just uh, later Gone with the Wind. The nation was obsessed to some extent with the South in as much as storytelling could before the nation could be spread out nationally through such things as bestsellers, of course, and the stage later, and then here comes cinema already in the 19-teens. The Civil War is the American drama, but the South is the more romantic side of it. Not even today is it possible to give Ulysses Simpson grand the reputation Robert E. Lee has had for so long. And then, you know, the reputation of Lee might be absolutely destroyed in the hysteria we're living through now, but that would do nothing to make romantic heroes of, say, this or that northern general. And that's perhaps unjust. I certainly favor the Union side, you know, even in its war making. It seems more moral American. But there's no denying the romance of the South. It ties America to the past, granted through cruelty, not just through splendor, but it ties it to the old world. It ties it to, say, the world south of the border. It ties it to mankind's past to aristocracy to greatness and it seems like people can never get enough of that griffith as much as the rest of america was involved in this kind of nostalgia he was just much better able to show it to everyone else this is somehow waiting for americans to fall in love with or it's giving americans something they love in the romance of the south in a way they have never had it before and with a certain vision of the nation. We'll, we'll get to the movie in our second part of the conversation, but Griffith is not just a bungler. He is not a, a great artist in the sense in which it might be required to give America the definitive artistic vision of the Civil War. But, you know, nobody else has done it either. So he's not really second to anyone else. But he has thought about why America is the way it is, what America needs from its love of the South, how America might move forward and be proud of its overcoming this, this great strife. And these are not the thoughts of an everyday, ordinary worker in entertainment or in any other industry. These are the thoughts of a very ambitious man. These are the ambitions of somebody of uh, national importance, at least in the sense of having wide views, of having a certain kind of education and a certain kind of altitude of thought that is a perspective to take in all of America and its past and future too. So there is something in Griffith that attracts not merely the artist, but the thinker. 
there's something in him for the historian and for the student of politics, not just for the lover of cinema. And he's a mess in so many self-made and self-mythologized American heroes and scoundrels must be. But he has many attractions. And just as we talk about him, there are so many things that baffle the mind. We could talk about this guy and never get to his movies if we kept that. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And um, yeah, I, th I think as we move into the second part, you know, one of the things that you said is that he's no bungler. And I think that's why I think I had such a visceral reaction to the discussion at the Library of Congress. I mean, you don't make a movie that for over 100 years is the most controversial movie in American history if you're a bungler, right? It, you know, plenty of people made horrible racist screeds, and they disappeared into oblivion where they belonged. But Griffith did something quite different than that, and he was stung by that criticism. And every film he made after Birth of a Nation, to some extent, was, was his attempt to rebuke that criticism. Again, that's only possible, as you said, in somebody who really is thinking quite deeply about these things. And like many creative artists, I'm not sure that he always fully understood these things, but they certainly manifested themselves in his art and his techniques and in his thoughts. And then, of course, we know this because they're in the film. As I wrestle with the film and its implications and its meaning on how to make sure that it can be used today in a way that I think is salutary and can be seen and for what it is, and it's good and in it's bad, is that Griffith is wrestling with this idea of what a nation is to be. And one of the things that he recognized was that this was a new nation. And he had, as an actor, the ability to travel around. You know, if you look at the list of podunk places and big places he played as an actor, right, he had seen America. And he understood that the rural Southern uh, America of his childhood and, and the heroic world that he got from his father and his father's peers was not modern America, and that there needed to be some connection between the two. And that for all its flaws, that's what he was trying to do with this film. Exactly. And uh, I think we can close out our first part of the conversation with talking about the success of the movie and, and the reaction at the time, a hundred years ago, just so that we give our audience, so to speak, contemporary evidence of the way Griffith took America by storm, the shock and the controversy and the success and everything that was involved in Americans realizing that this had never been done before, even though they were not quite sure whether it should have been done. Yes. So, you know, the, the, the film had its uh, preview on January 1st and 2nd of 1915. It's incredible to think that this film was shot. He, of course, you know, one of those, speaking of romantic theatrical moments of Griffith, he chose to start filming on July 4th, right? <laughs> so, so the 4th of July, 1914, filming commenced, and it was ready for audience previews January 1st. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, you think about the interminable length it takes to create a modern film with all of our technology and a hundred years of filmmaking experience under the belt. And it's something to be said for these guys and their work ethic, if nothing else. But from that preview, Griffith was always attuned to audience reaction. And it would next be opened in Clune's Auditorium in Los Angeles. And from there, it moved to New York City for its opening. There were immediate protests by African-Americans. One of the, the old myths that some film fans want to dismiss the criticism was as well, you know, that was just back in the day, everybody was racist. So he was just a man of his time. Well, no, there was considerable pushback and not just from African-Americans when the film premiered in Los Angeles in February. And of course, people, the very early and somewhat loosely organized NAACP alerted its offices in New York City 
was not really a, a big national powerhouse organization. In fact, its rise to prominence among African-Americans was because of this film. Many leading African-American figures were shocked and horrified by the depiction of reconstruction of African-Americans in the film. And they immediately began to debate among themselves. I mean, Booker T. Washington, W.E. Dubois, were immediately taken up with what to do about this. At the same time, audience reactions were overwhelmingly enthusiastic. And even though Labria, which had been the big Italian epic based on the Punic Wars, had hit American theaters in the fall of 1914, Griffith did not see that film until he was almost finished with everything but the final editing and the roadshow arrangements for Birth of a Nation. When the film originally opened, it opened under the title of the original novel, The Klansman, and then it was changed. Again, Griffith is very sensitive to his audience and to the audience's reaction. But when the film opened in New York City, because of the controversy and because of the length of the film and the fact that this was, a, you know, people expected Europeans to be able to turn out highbrow historical epic. That was seen as understandable. But when it was opened at the Liberty Theater, Griffith's company, his distribution company, which a part of he was part owner, and that's a complicated story. It's a story in itself, but they actually had to rent the theater themselves. A year later, the film was still playing there and at a profit. This was unheard of in early American or even global cinema. It's been estimated that probably more people globally saw uh, The Birth of a Nation on its opening release than any other film in history since. It took the globe by storm. People at the Liberty, in fact, insisted that they charge full live theater ticket prices, which was about $2, which you pay for a decent seat at a New York first-run live play or musical at the time. That's what they were charging. Griffith was terrified that this was going to tank it financially, especially since he was paying for the rental of the theater. And of course, it turned out not to be the case. The other thing was that there was a 40-piece orchestra to accompany the score with the score that had been specifically composed or arranged, both arranged and composed, to go with the film. Again, aping what had happened in Europe. So this was really a, a huge risk. But between the protests against the film, the film had to be edited. At that point in America, we had a national board of censorship, which didn't really have legal national standing, but was sort of a de facto organization. There were individual states. Individual states in the silent film era could actually censor films. And so both New York and Massachusetts, among other places, ordered cuts to the film of the most offensive bits. African-American leaders met with judges, the mayor of New York City. They felt very betrayed and continued to launch protests across the country. There were riots in Chicago and other neighborhoods where whites attacked black neighborhoods in the aftermath of the film. But the film continued to garner reviews and packed audiences. And of course, when Griffith was in the process of bringing the film to the East Coast, he did not go directly to New York City. He went to Washington, D.C., one of the most interesting and controversial and from a business point of view, clever movements possible. There were two famous screenings in Washington. One was for members of the Supreme Court, United States congressmen, members of the diplomatic corps, other leading socialites and members of the government and bureaucracy in, in Washington. And then a separate screening at the White House for President Woodrow Wilson. We'll talk about this more the next time we talk about the origin of the film, but the author, Dixon, of the novel had been a classmate of Woodrow Wilson's, and they had been not exactly best or close friends, but definitely remained in correspondence over the year. And Woodrow Wilson's writings end up as part of the intertitles of the film. And so 
there is a famous comment that Woodrow Wilson said something to the effect after his screening in the White House that this is hit history written in lightning and it is so sad because it is so terrible and so very true. It's a bit of a debate about if he really said that, but he certainly wrote something very similar very shortly thereafter, most likely referring to the film. So with sort of the seal of the approval of President Wilson and of the Supreme Court and Congress, moving the film to New York City guaranteed a reception, a respectable reception from respectable people. And of course, African-Americans saw the film and were horrified by aspects of it uh, and by its overarching narrative. But in many ways, while the controversy allowed the NAACP to emerge as one of the leading organs of organizing and expressing frustration at the failures of America to live up to the promises of the Declaration and launched it into this successful engine for civil rights that it became, the controversy also guaranteed that more and more people saw the film. In fact, there was many internal discussions among African-American leaders if it had not been a mistake to protest the film so vigorously because it had guaranteed additional press coverage. But the film toured all over America and could be seen for the next two years. It would be re-released in 1920 and 21 and played all over America again, and then was released in 1930 with sound added, each time making a huge profit and a huge impression, and then featuring in various revivals as I mentioned earlier, Graham Greene seeing it in London in 1936. The reviews from the period, if you go and read them in secondary sources, if you go to newspapers.com and, and you can read them, you can find them very easily. And people were bowled over by the ability of Griffith to tell a story. And the audience reaction, whether negative or positive, was undeniable that this was a film of an immense emotional and artistic achievement something that no American film had ever come close to doing before. And I think this is a good place to close the first part of our conversation. Look at D.W. Griffith at the top of his powers. A new art form, this astonishing movie, a national and an international success. The man makes it to the White House. The president gives his approval. Indeed, the movie quotes Wilson's history of the American people. And so it's somehow tied up with the politics of the times and of the Democratic Party and of this combination of progressivism and racism of Wilson's. And at the same time, this great success with America suggests this astonishing fact that somehow the reunion of North and South, the agreement to somehow go beyond the Civil War and that had divided the nation was at the expense of Blacks. Uh, to the extent that there is a nostalgia, it's because of the honor of the war, but that honor of the war must exclude the concern of the, with regard to the justice of the war, and hence this problem. And so the, the greatness of D.W. Griffith is tied up itself with the national trauma with, and with a national shame. I suppose nowadays all that's left is the national shame, but it's perhaps useful to remember that this was not so, and that there must be something to the glory and the honor of the war itself, or else there's really nothing to talk about. That says no revelation of human greatness, only of human misery. All right, Eric, thanks a lot for joining me. I'm very glad we have finally gotten this series off the ground. And let us talk about the movie itself in our next conversation. Edith, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come along and, and discuss Griffith's life and his work and the rise of silent film in America. And I can't wait till we dig into the, the details of the film and we can unpack some of these ideas about the failure of America after the Civil War to wind up the nation by leaving out uh, African-Americans from that process. 